And as we gather now today, Lord, we pray that you would that you would use your word to sharpen us. We pray that you would use your word to strengthen us. And we pray that as we come to your word, we would see our desperate need for Christ. We pray, O oh Lord, that through the Spirit's conviction in our hearts, that he would be our greatest treasure. And that we would pursue him above every other thing. We pray, O oh Lord, for our children. And we pray that you would save them as well. We pray that the seeds of the gospel that land in their hearts today, Lord, that that would be good soil. Soil that would produce a bountiful harvest in your time. But we do pray, O Lord, for our children. And we pray for ourselves that your word would not return void to you as we come to your word and study your word. As we see how your word relates to our lives. And as we see what you would have us do. Use this time, O Lord, to strengthen us, but most of all, to glorify Christ. Teach us to be like Him. Grow us in His image as we study Your Word, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to John chapter 12. I told you when we started this chapter that we would not be in this chapter for very long, and we're going to be finishing it today looking at verses 44 to 50. John chapter 12, verses 44 to 50. There's a story, and I don't know how true it is. There's probably an element of truth in it, and there's probably an element of uh, non-truth in it. Uh, But there's a story of a man who received a final notice from the IRS that his his tax payment was overdue and that he was going to face legal action if he didn't immediately pay it off. And so he packed up his things, he grabbed his keys, grabbed his, uh, his checkbook, and he raced over to the local IRS office. He rushed in, flustered, uh, with his payment in hand, and said to the, to the clerk, I, I would have paid sooner, but I never received any prior notices. I never received a first notice. And the clerk looked at him and said, We ran out of first notices. Besides, we discovered that final notices are much more effective. Again, I'm not sure how much truth there is to that story, but it makes the point that we understand that final notices are important, especially if it's somebody like the IRS, that they carry a sense of urgency in them. And that's certainly the case when it comes to paying any bill. But we also understand the importance of being the one to have the final word Uh, If you're in a debate or in a discussion, often the person who gets the final word is the one who wins the discussion. Uh, That's that's the the case whenever a debate takes place. The, The final word always has an advantage. But the final notice with bill collectors and the final word with debaters pale in urgency. They pale in authority. They pale in importance to God giving a final notice and having the final word. And he will indeed have the final word in all matters. The atheist might think that denying God's existence is going to allow him to to put that final notice and the final word on hold. That Maybe that won't even happen. Maybe God won't have the final word. But Paul warned the philosophers in Athens who were gathered on Mars Hill 
that God has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. And when God says something, it is a certainty. So when God gives a final word, and His final word is a final notice, it is urgent that we pay attention. We would be very, very wise to listen closely. And so as we continue our study of John's Gospel today, we come to the point where Jesus is going to have the final word toward those who had rejected Him. Of course, that is the Jews who have come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Now, it's important to remember that those who had come to this feast in Jerusalem were not just a select few. They weren't just a minority of people who could afford to travel to Jerusalem. All Jews were required to go to Jerusalem for the Passover. And thus, Jesus' rejection at the Passover as Israel's Messiah was a rejection not just by a select few that represented the many, but it's by many. It's not just a few. It's, it's everybody. It's the whole nation. So we know that Jesus' hour has come. Of course, this has been a theme throughout John's Gospel. This is actually probably the day before uh, the day of His betrayal. Jesus has preached the Gospel to the people who refused to believe in Him on the basis of any of His miracles. And then He withdrew from the people and hid Himself from them, which we saw last week was a clear sign of judgment against them. But having turned from the light, all that they will have now is the darkness that they have desired all along. But, Jesus did preach the Gospel to them one last time. And we saw exactly why He took time to preach the Gospel to them. It's because some among them would be pulled out of the darkness and into the light. Some who, wouldn't, some who completely refused to believe on the basis of Jesus' miracles would believe upon hearing the Gospel preached even as Jesus hid Himself from the public. And that brings us to the final passage of this chapter, which is really a transitional chapter. Chapters 1-11 to are called the book of signs because John records seven signs, seven miracles in those chapters. And chapters 13-21 to are called the book of the passion because they tell us about the events that surround the crucifixion of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. So chapter 12 transitions us between these two proverbial books. We don't know when or where these final words in this passage uh, were spoken. What we know is that Jesus has hid Himself from the people. He's probably somewhere with His disciples, uh, maybe back in Bethany at uh, Mary and Martha and Lazarus' house. But the words that we find in our passage today are kind of a summary. They're, they're not new uh, words. He's spoken them in various ways prior to this point in the text. But they are a clear and succinct summary of the Gospel and of the urgency of believing in Him savingly. His words serve as a review of some of the key truths that John's Gospel has emphasized up until this point. These words are the final words that he spoke to unbelieving Israel before he was betrayed, handed over to Pontius Pilate, and crucified. 
And so in today's passage, the final passage of this chapter, Jesus is going to give us four distinct and specific reasons why people should believe in Him. Of course, this applied to the Jews of His time, but they also apply to people today. And thus, the point of this passage is that we should believe in Him, number one, because He is one with the Father. Number two, because He is light, and apart from Him, there is only darkness. Number three, because His words will judge all who reject Him. And finally, number four, because the commandment He speaks from the Father is eternal life. So we'll begin by looking at verses 44 and 45 in our text. John chapter 12, verses 44 and 45. We read this. And Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in Me does not believe in Me, but in Him who sent Me. He who sees Me sees the One who sent Me. So this passage starts out by telling us that Jesus cried out. That He cried out. Now there are only five instances in all of the Gospels in which we're told that Jesus cried out. Two of them took place on the cross. In Matthew 27, verse 46, we read, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then we read in verse 50, same chapter, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Another time we're told that Jesus cried out was at the Feast of Tabernacles here in John's Gospel, which was recorded in uh, chapters 7 and 8. In uh, chapter 7, verses 37 and 38, we read this, Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. So that's three times. The fourth time we're told that Jesus cried out was in the previous chapter, back at the tomb of Lazarus. In verse 43 in chapter 11, we read this, When He had said these things, He cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And the fifth time that we read about Jesus crying out is right here in verse 44. The Greek word that gets translated cried out is the same word that was used to refer to the cry of a raven. Um, You might say the screech or the scream of a raven. It implies that Jesus is screaming as he says these words. When the disciples saw Jesus walking out on the Sea of Galilee and they thought that he was a ghost, uh, they cried out. We're told they cried out. Well, what do people do when they're absolutely scared out of their mind. They let out a blood-curdling scream, right? And that's the same word that gets used of Jesus here. The same, it describes the manner in which Jesus speaks these words. He cries them out. He yells them out at the top of his lungs. He screams them out. So we get the sense when, when we see that, that Jesus is filled with emotion here. Why? Why is he filled with emotion? It's because the people didn't believe. But it's more than that. It's not just the fact that they didn't believe. It's that they didn't believe despite the fact that they should have. In fact, they had every reason in the world to believe, and yet they didn't. In fact, there are at least four reasons why they should have believed and why people today should believe. 
The first reason that Jesus gives us here for believing in Him is because He is one with the Father. The first reason to believe in Jesus is because He is one with the Father. He says, He who believes in Me does not believe in Me, but in Him who sent Me. He who sees Me sees the One who sent Me. He is one with the Father. To see Jesus, therefore, is to see the One who sent Jesus. So, who sent Jesus? The Father did. God did. So so in saying this, Jesus is affirming His unity. He is affirming His oneness with the Father. Now, we've already seen Him emphasize this before. He's said things very similar to this several times throughout this text. Back in John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus said to the Pharisees, I and the Father are one. Then in verse 38, He said, The Father is in Me, and I in the Father. There are several other places in John's Gospel where He emphasized the unity that He has with the Father, the oneness that He has with the Father. So what we need to understand is while they are two distinct persons, there is nevertheless an essential unity that exists between the Father and the Son. So united are they, so united are the Father and the Son, that to see the Son is to see the Father. This is going to be a point that we return to once again when we get to chapter 14 when Philip says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. And Jesus responds to him. Once again, he will affirm the unity that he has with the Father and he'll say this to Philip, have I been with, it's been so long with you and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? To see Jesus is to see the Father because Jesus is one with the Father, and yet they are two distinct persons. So we have to understand that to see Jesus is to see God, is to see the Father. They are distinct in their persons, but they have such a unity that to see one is to see them both. But conversely, the implication is that to deny the Son is to deny the Father. To turn away from the Son is to turn away from the Father, to turn away from God. To disbelieve the Son is to disbelieve the Father. The unity of the Father and the Son not only give Jesus the absolute highest possible credentials, but it also reveals why God is so offended by people not believing in Jesus. That is to say that the oneness of the Father and the Son not only tells us why we should believe in Jesus, but it helps us understand the urgency of believing in Him and why the consequence for not doing that is eternal damnation in hell. In the case of the Jews, what was the consequence of their unbelief? God hardened their hearts. Now you might think that that's harsh. But that's actually a gracious, gracious judgment. God would have been perfectly just, completely righteous in ending their lives on the spot for their disbelief. But He allowed them to continue to live and to enjoy the good things in life that God has provided. But the point here is that Jesus is one with God. And as such, He's able to both speak for God and to reveal God. 
he's qualified to not only speak for God, he's also qualified to reveal God. He's validated those credentials over and over again by performing signs and wonders, miracles that confirmed who he was. He alone has the credentials to speak for God and to reveal God. That's what Jesus means when He says, He who sees Me sees the One who sent Me. He's revealing the One who sent Him. Do you want to know what God is like? You should. I mean, everybody should, right? We should want to know what God is like. Jesus shows us. Jesus shows us the love of God. Jesus shows us the righteousness of God. Jesus shows us the holiness of God. The compassion of God. Yes, even the anger of God. Remember back in chapter 2 when He went in and cleaned out the money changers in the temple? He shows us even the wrath of God. He reveals the grace of God. He reveals the wisdom of God. The omniscience of God. The omnipotence of God. Jesus, as Paul noted in his letter to the Colossians, is the image of the invisible God. If we want to know what God is like, if we want to see God revealed, we learn the truth about God by learning the truth about Jesus. If we study Jesus, if we look at Him, we see what God is like. He reveals God to us. In the words of John Owen, quote, In Christ we behold the wisdom, goodness, love, grace, mercy, and power of God, all working together for the great work of our redemption and salvation. End quote. Now, John actually started out his gospel uh, by telling us that this is something that Jesus came to do and that he was qualified to do it. Back in chapter 1, verse 18, we saw him tell us of Jesus, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. He's talking about Jesus there. This unity is also emphasized in John's epistles. In 1 John 2.23, for example, John writes, Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. There's this unity, this theme of the unity of the Father and the Son. So these Jews who rejected Jesus, they rejected God as well. And to this day, They continue to reject God because they continue to reject Jesus. And nobody who rejects Jesus still has fellowship with the Father. You can't have one without the other. The way to God is through Jesus. And Jesus is one with God. He's one with the Father. So the first reason that Jesus gives us in our text today for believing in Him. The first reason that these Jews who rejected Him should have believed is because He is one with the Father. He alone reveals God. And apart from Him, apart from Jesus, it is impossible to know or to be in fellowship with God. Let me say that again. Apart from Jesus, it is impossible for anyone to know or to be in fellowship with with God. What does that say about every other religion in the world? They're worshiping idols. They're worshiping false gods. By revealing what God is like, Jesus also reveals what humanity is not like. Doesn't He? Think about it for a second. 
by revealing what God is like, He reveals what humanity is not like. There's a positive side and a negative side to what He reveals. He shows us that God is loving and pure and righteous and merciful and just and and that we aren't. And that we aren't. He's a picture of what we would be if our nature were not corrupted by sin as a result of Adam's fall. See, when God made man in His own image, the purpose was to be a reflection of God. That's what we were designed to do. To bear His image. But sin corrupted our nature and thus greatly diminished God's reflection in us. It's still there. It's effaced, but it's not erased. The only man ever since Adam whose nature was not corrupted by sin is Jesus. He reflected the image of God perfectly. So not only should we say when we look at Jesus, this is what God is like, but we should also say, this is what I'm not like and what I should be like. As Richard Phillips notes so eloquently, he says, quote, the true disgrace of sin is that we who were made to reveal God need to have God revealed to us. End quote. And that's what Jesus does. We cannot know God. We cannot experience fellowship with God apart from Jesus. To believe and to receive Him is to believe and receive God. But to deny Jesus, to reject Jesus, to turn away from Jesus is to deny and reject God. So the first reason that persons should believe in Jesus is because He is one with the Father. To deny His oneness with God. To deny that He is God incarnate. Or that He lived a perfectly sinless life. Is to close the door altogether on communion with God. To see Jesus is to see God the Father. And to believe in Jesus as God is to believe in the Father who sent Him. Which is exactly what one must believe in order to be saved. Secondly, We should believe in Jesus, he says. And the Jews that he was just rejected by should have believed Jesus because he and he alone is the light that leads us out of darkness and into fellowship with God in the light. Look at verse 46 with me. Jesus continues saying, I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. That is the second reason that they should have believed in Him and why people today should believe in Him. Because He is the light. Light has been a major theme throughout John's Gospel. That started all the way back at the beginning. Chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, where John said this of Jesus, In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And then in verse 9, chapter 1, there was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. And then again, chapter 3, verses 19 and 21, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. The importance of this imagery, Jesus being light, 
is that a world without Jesus is a dark, dark world. It's a world without light. That is to say that a world without Jesus is completely lost in moral and spiritual darkness, and there is no hope. If you can imagine being in a cave where there's no light. Has anybody ever been in a cave where they turn the lights out just to show you how dark the darkest darkness is? It's pretty crazy. It's a darkness that's so dark you can't even begin to see the faintest glance of your hand right in front of your face. Without light, what is going to lead you out of that kind of darkness? Without light, what's going to lead you out of that cave? And the answer is nothing. You will die in there. You will die in there. And that's a picture of humanity apart from Jesus. Dead in the darkness of our trespasses and sins. What will give the unregenerate man spiritual understanding? Only God can. Only light can. I mean, you can put the truth right in front of an unregenerate person and they cannot even begin to see it, just like in a cave, you can't even begin to see your hand right in front of your face. Likewise, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, Paul makes it very clear that apart from Jesus, apart from believing in Him and having the enlightenment of the Spirit, man by nature cannot understand the things that the Spirit of God has revealed in God's Word. In Ephesians chapter 4.18, Paul tells us that the unregenerate man is darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. That is man by nature. That is you and me in our natural unregenerate state before we knew Christ. This is the condition every single one of us was born into every single one of us but jesus tells us that he came so that everyone who believes in him will not remain in darkness and maybe you see the problem that that creates how are we supposed to believe in jesus if we can't understand by nature spiritual truth Why would we come to Him if our nature is to only hate the light and to flee from the light and to remain in the darkness, the sin that we so love? And the answer is grace. We need a new nature. We need a new heart. And that's what God gives us by grace. Grace alone We do not seek God by nature. We do not seek God until He has already sought us. Those in darkness don't go looking for light. And any light that they see, they turn from by nature. But Jesus, as the light, came to seek us. To seek and save the lost. And the Father drew us to Him. And just as there's only one sun that lights the earth, so too there's only one light that leads us out of the darkness and into fellowship with God, and that is Jesus. When He says that He came in order that all who believe will not remain in darkness, we see a couple things. First, we see that the only alternative to being in the light is to remain in darkness. 
The fact that he says, remain in darkness, reminds us that that's where we start by nature. That's where everybody is by nature. And it reminds us that those who do not come to him in faith are under the dominion of Satan and have no deliverance from the power and the absolute ruin of sin in their lives. When you hear me talking about how our culture is becoming increasingly dark, this is what I'm talking about. What I mean is our culture's sense of morality is increasingly reflecting the dominion of Satan and the ruin of sin. That's what happens when a culture abandons the moral precepts found in God's Word. What happens when you remove the moral basis, God's Word, for for not stealing, or for not murdering, or for not lying? All those things increase. And do you wonder why crime is skyrocketing in the most progressive cities in our country? The movement to remove the police, who by the way are called to be ministers of God to you for good, according to Romans chapter 13 verse 4, the movement to remove these ministers of God to you for good has resulted in Seattle recording the most homicides we've had in 26 years. In fact, in one year, in just one year, the homicide rate increased 49% in Seattle. Now, if that doesn't, if that doesn't reflect a culture that is turning away from God and, and, and at the same time necessarily becoming increasingly dark. Nothing does. The second reason a person should believe in Jesus is because Jesus has both the power and the authority to deliver those who believe in Him from the darkness, from Satan's dominion, from the power of sin. He and He alone is the light that leads us out of darkness. You must know today, friends, that if you have not believed in Jesus, you are a slave to sin. And you are totally and completely lost in moral and spiritual darkness. And yet, here you are. Listening to me opening up God's Word, which is also referred to as light, and explaining it. Will you face the facts and believe that Jesus is God incarnate and thus worthy of your faith and obedience today? And if you've already believed, as I hope you have, if you've already believed, then what Jesus is saying here should motivate us to press on through the darkness by God's grace, walking in the light, even as our culture grows increasingly dark, increasingly wicked, evil, and godless. So the first reason people should believe in Jesus is because He's one with the Father. The second reason people should believe in Jesus is because He is the light, the only light that leads us into fellowship with God. Third, a person should believe in Jesus because to reject His words means that you will face judgment by those words on the last day. Look at verses 47 and 48 with me. Jesus continues saying, If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. Once again, 
This is a truth that Jesus has repeated several times throughout John's Gospel. In chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, Jesus said, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. In John chapter 5, verse 22, We saw Jesus say this to the Pharisees as He was defending His healing the crippled man on the Sabbath. He said, For not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son. Then He'd go on to say in verse 27, that the Father gave Him, gave the Son, authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. And then Jesus would go on to say again, chapter 5, verses 45 to 47, he said, Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you had believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Again, in John chapter 9, verse 39, Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see, and those that and those who see may become blind. So the purpose of Jesus coming and taking on flesh was not to judge or condemn the world because they were already there. That was already the position in which they stood. Even those who don't know what God's Word says, even those who don't have God's law, know what God's law instructs and are thus justly condemned because God wrote His law on their hearts according to Romans chapter 2, verse 14. In other words, that's what we call a conscience. Everybody has a conscience. And yet, everyone Absolutely everybody acts against their own conscience. For example, kids don't need to be taught how to steal or lie, and yet they also instinctively know that it's wrong to steal or lie. Now Jesus' statement here has confused some people. might seem a little bit confusing because elsewhere uh, He and, and Scripture do attest to the fact that He will judge the world on the last day. Now Jesus isn't denying that here. Rather, what he's doing, the point that he's making here is that he didn't come to judge or condemn. He came to ransom and redeem his people. He came to ransom and redeem everybody who would believe in him. People who have never heard the gospel and never know what God's word says will still be rightly judged and condemned one day. But if that's true, consider how much more harshly those who have heard the gospel will be judged, but have rejected it. And they've rejected Jesus. How much more will they be judged and condemned for their refusal to repent and believe in Him as He has continually urged these people? From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much of Him, they will ask all the more. Jesus once warned uh, that Judgment Day will be all the more tolerable for pagan godless cities like Tyre and Sidon, where the gospel, the light of the gospel was never shined. It would be much more tolerable for these pagan godless cities than it was for those where the gospel light was shined, and yet they rejected Him. The first time Jesus came, 2,000 years ago, He came to bring salvation through His atonement, through His sacrifice, but He's coming again. And the next time He comes, He's bringing a sword with Him. 
He's coming to judge. There will be a last day, friends. There will be a last day. It sometimes feels like there won't be. I get it. But there will be a last day. Revelation 6.16 tells us that all who have rejected Jesus will cry out to the mountains and the rocks on that day, saying, fall on us and hide us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. You must know, especially if you have never savingly believed in Jesus, you must know that there will be a last day and that it will be a day of judgment. But Jesus also offered a sure way to escape God's wrath on that awful day. In John chapter 5, verse 24, Jesus gives us this promise. He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Faith. Faith in Christ is the way to escape God's wrath on that day. And when you believe Him, He says, you believe the One who sent Him. You come into fellowship with God through Christ, through faith in Christ. So we should believe in Jesus. These people should have believed in Jesus first because He's one with the Father. Second, because He is light and apart from Him there is only darkness. Third, because His words will judge all who reject Him on the final day. And fourth and finally, a person should believe in Jesus because the commandment He speaks from the Father is eternal life. Let's continue with verses 49 and 50. Jesus says, For I did not speak on My own initiative, But the Father Himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that His commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father told me. Now once again, we need to understand that this is not something new for Jesus. This isn't the first time that He's taught this. We've seen many, many similar statements to this throughout John's Gospel. John 5.19, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of Himself unless it is something He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. Again, John 7.16, Jesus said, My teaching is not Mine, but His who sent Me. Uh, John chapter 8, verse 28, Jesus again said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. So this is just falling into line with all these previous statements that Jesus has said about where He got the message that He has come to proclaim. It's not from His own initiative, it's from the Father. He wasn't acting independently of God. Rather, he was always, always, whether it was actions, thoughts, or words, he was always perfectly aligned with God's will. A.W. Pink explains it this way. He says, quote, He acted not in independency, but in perfect oneness of heart, mind, and will with the Father. Whether the Jews believed them or not, the messages which Christ had delivered were divinely true, and therefore therefore were they words of life to all who received them. End quote. Now you might be asking yourself, what commandment is he referring to here? What commandment is it that is eternal life? And the answer is simply, 
Believe on Jesus and you will be saved. As Paul and Silas said to the, to the jailkeeper in Acts chapter 16, who asked, what must I do to be saved? They said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Now most people, when they think about the gospel, they, they think of it kind of as an invitation. But I would argue, argue that it's not an invitation per se. I mean, if you send me an invitation to some kind of event, you're giving me the option either to come or not to come. But the gospel is, as Jesus says here, a commandment. It's not given as a suggestion It is an instruction. It is a commandment. It's what God is owed. We owe Him faith in His Son. As James Montgomery Boyce notes, he says, God is our Master and He orders us to turn from sin and to respond to Him. He orders us. This is the command that God the Father sent the Son to preach. Repent and believe. By refusing to do that, by refusing to hear, by refusing to obey what Christ has proclaimed, therefore, was not only to reject Jesus, it was not only to reject the Son, it was also to reject the Father. It was to reject God altogether. To reject this message, the Gospel, is to reject eternal life. And I can't even begin to imagine anything more short-sighted or foolish than that. Believe in Jesus and you will be saved. He's given us four specific, very clear reasons here in our text. We should believe in Jesus first because He is one with the Father. We should believe in Jesus secondly because He is the light that leads us out of the darkness and into fellowship with the Father. Third, because His words will judge all who reject Him on the last day. And fourth and finally, a person should believe in Jesus because the commandment He speaks from the Father is eternal life. If you've believed in Jesus, as I hope you have, don't ever forget that just as the Father gave Jesus a message to preach, so too Jesus gave us a message to preach. In John chapter 20, verse 21, Jesus is going to say to His disciples, As the Father has sent Me, I also send you. But Jesus also said that He was going to send a Helper. So we have not only Jesus' commandment, but we have the means through which we can do that. The Helper, the Holy Spirit. What does He send us to do? What does Jesus send us to do through the power of the Holy Spirit? To deliver the same message to the world that the Father gave Him to deliver. To preach the Gospel. The baton is now in our hands, friends. What a blessing. What what a humbling honor it is to remember that God doesn't need us. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. But He's given us this privilege in participating in His mission and of bringing the message that brings redemption to the world through the preaching of the Gospel. Jesus has had the last word, the final word, with the Jews. And it's not only the last word, it was also a final notice. There's an urgency here, an extreme urgency to this. 
There's an extreme urgency not only to believe, but to faithfully carry out the mission that has been given to us as the church. As Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, We are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, may God grant us grace, conviction, and courage to shine the light of the gospel faithfully, even as the culture around us grows darker and darker. It's never been easier to see how lost in darkness those who are in darkness are than it is now. And they need the gospel. It's urgent. Their eternal destiny depends on it. Let's pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You and we praise You that though You are worthy of all praise and all honor and faith, and though by nature we never would have sought You, never would have believed in You, nevertheless You have shined the light into the world through Jesus, through the preaching of the Gospel, and You gave us faith to believe. You gave us a new nature, a new heart that would respond to You with faith. We thank You for sending Jesus. We thank You for the Gospel. We thank You for the glory of the Gospel in the fact that it saves sinners, that it transforms sinners even where miracles and the most amazing things in the world don't. We thank You that You gave us faith to believe. We pray that You would now give us courage and conviction and wisdom to go forth with this message and to faithfully preach that Your elect from among the nations would be called and that by Your grace they would be saved. Teach us, O Lord, to be humble and to see the urgency urgency of this mission and that we would be faithful to do so, to to carry it out by Your grace so that on the last day we could hear Your words, well done, good and faithful servant. All for the glory of Christ. In His name we pray. Amen.